Today, um, we are tackling a tough subject. In the previous weeks, the, the first three weeks of the series, uh, I've been kind of geeking out on data and on uh, stuff. We've talked about science, right? We've talked about all kinds of – last week was different religions, and so I've given you tons of input, tons of data. We've been trying to uh, approach some of these different questions from that vantage point. Uh, today is kind of a different deal because although it is sort of an intellectual question, it's not a question uh, – the question that we're addressing isn't really one that – Data is going to help that much because it, it's really dealing with hardship oftentimes in our own lives. It's dealing with hurt, with pain, with um, stuff that happens in this world that, that leaves us scratching our heads and wondering, where is God in the midst of this? Right? It's not just, for some, it may just be an intellectual question of how, you know, how do you deal with the, the fact that the Bible talks about a God that is completely good, Right, that is all powerful, and at the same time, how do you how do you you know how do you put this together with with the truth over here? Of this world is a mess sometimes, and there's evil, and there's suffering, and there's hardship, and there's pain. And while it may be an intellectual question for some, for a lot of people, it's not. For a lot of people, it is very personal, isn't it? These are the kinds of questions that we ask sometimes when uh, when when young grieving widows stumble away uh, from funerals. It's a question when, that we ask sometimes when horrible natural disasters happen or terrorist attacks happen. We, we stop and we ask the question, why? Right? Where is God in the midst of this? Why does he allow this kind of stuff to happen? It's the kind of thing that happens that we ask when we experience disease or chronic pain or natural disasters or poverty or terrible crimes. When three generations all die by the hand of one drunk driver, we ask the question, Why? Why would God allow this? When there are babies in other parts of the world that are contract, contracting HIV from drinking the milk from their moms, we scratch our heads and ask the question, why? Why would God allow that kind of thing? When a spouse betrays us and we feel hurt and abandoned and alone, we ask the question, why? Often the question of suffering isn't something that's ab abstract or some distant question out there. We've experienced it. Either that or we've watched people close to us uh, that have suffered significantly. We've watched them suffer, and we have asked ourselves the same question. Why would God allow it? Why would God allow such horrible things to happen to people that we love and to people that, according to Scripture, people that He, love, he loves? That's what we're going to be tackling this morning. And I'll just say up front, this is an impossible task that I have before me. This is an impossible question to answer in its entirety. It, it just is. The Bible doesn't really give us a, a fully complete answer on this, a fully satisfactory explanation. It's something that all of us wrestle with, and to some degree, it is a matter of faith. I was reminded this week of Isaiah 55. This is one place among many when, when, when God makes this kind of a statement where he says, you know what, my thoughts are not your thoughts, God says, and neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. And I have to say, when we start talking about questions like the, the, the issue of evil and the issue of suffering in this world, this is one of those areas where, where part of it is we have to step back and say, man, there's some things we just can't know. There are some questions that we will carry with us our entire lives, and it's going to be on the short list when we get to heaven one day. We say, I'm asking God this first, right? Because right. I don't understand, because I don't get it. 
There are some things we can't know when we start talking about this kind of topic. However, there's a lot that we can know from the pages of God's book. And so I want us to focus in on those kinds of things today. I'm going to focus in on what we can know because I think that we can know enough and we can answer this question enough, so to speak, that we can reasonably trust God even when hard things happen, even in a world that's filled with junk, where there's hurt and hardship and pain and suffering. We can know enough and see enough to trust him anyway. So that's kind of where we're going. My prayer for you is if you are here and you are hurting today, and this is not just a, an intellectual question, if this is something that really you're wrestling with, maybe even today, uh, in some way. My prayer for you this week has really been that Jesus would meet you here. That uh, even that song that Alex just sang of just come to the altar, which is sort of a fancy way of saying just come to me, Jesus says, that, that you would encounter and know his presence and his peace and his power for you today. All right? So that's kind of where we're going. I'm going to do some rapid fire today. I had seven points originally. I cut one for the sake of time. So we're down to six points, uh, six things that I think we can know uh, about this topic from the pages of God's book. And uh, we'll at least partially, each one of these are going to take a kind of a different approach to it, but we'll partially answer this question of if God is so loving, why is there suffering and injustice and pain in the world? Okay, the first thing I want to look at is that the world is just as Jesus predicted, <laughs> Okay. First of all, I think sometimes uh, some of what makes this issue of suffering in life such a big problem for us is because I would argue that there's lots of uh, sort of unintentional false advertising about Christianity. Let me explain. There are some churches, Christian radio stations, many Christian organizations that we love, right, that have slogans like, life is just better with God. Life is, is, is great with God, which is true if we define it sort of in the right way. The problem is that so many people today define it more like, uh, if I follow Jesus, I'll never get cancer, I'll always get the promotion, I'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise, nothing bad will ever you know, happen to me or my kids, or we hope it will be that anyway. And the reality is that that's simply not true. That's false advertising. Jesus himself says this in John 16, he says, in this world, what does that say? You, does he say might? Is that what he says? In this world, you might have trouble, what does he say? In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have trouble. There is no promise that says, if you do life with God, that it's always going to be trouble-free. There's no promise that says, it's always going to be easier in the here and now. If you believe that, then you're going to have problems, significant problems in the pages of Scripture, aren't you? You're going to have problems reading through the book of Job. <laughs> A, a book that's all about a man that was upright and feared God, right? upright before God. He was, he was a godly man. He was doing his best to follow God. And yet in a very short period of time had everything that mattered to him stripped away. And he was devastated. And you can understand why. But if you think everything is going to be all sparkly if we, if we follow God, you'll have problems with Job. You'll have problems with people like John the Baptist. Who, whose job it was to prepare the way, to prepare the people for Jesus. Again, godly man who's following God, living out his purpose for his life. And yet what happened to John? Got beheaded, didn't he? He lost his head over the deal. We'd have problems with stuff like that. We'd have problems with the apostle Paul who wrote the majority of the New Testament was used by God to start countless churches. I mean, significant uh, godly man, significant player in the early church. 
And yet he was beaten, he was stoned, he was whipped, he was left for dead several different times. If we think that you know, following God is always going to be sparkly and nice in the here and now, then we'd have a problem with Jesus, wouldn't we? The only one who really never sinned. The only one who was completely undeserving and yet went to a cross for your sin and for mine. Following Christ does not necessarily mean that life will always be easy and that everything will go your way. It just doesn't, it just doesn't say that in the Bible. Now, is there blessing in following God? Sure. Do we experience that sometimes? Absolutely. Is God there with you in the midst of all this? What does the Bible say? Yeah, absolutely. I would even go as far as to say that life on your, you know, on on the worst day with Christ is infinitely better than your best day without him, right? There's something unbelievably different, but that does not mean that your life will be trouble-free. Jesus testifies to it when he says, you will have trouble in this life. Now there's hope, right? He says, now take heart, have hope, he says, because I have overcome the world. But that hope isn't that everything's going to turn out rose-colored and dandy in your life. When we focus too much on the here and now, right, on everything going right on the here and now, and believe that Christianity should offer us a happily ever after today, right now, and we put too much emphasis on the here and now, and not enough emphasis on what is coming one day, We set ourselves up to be very disappointed, to really struggle in this world. The hope of the church, the hope of of Christ followers for the last 2,000 years has been a better day is coming, and we'll get to that in a second, right? There is hope when, when one day all things will be restored, when justice will be done, when we will be rewarded, right, eternally for those that have followed Christ. There's hope but it's not in the here and now. Maybe not something we want to hear, but something we probably need to to acknowledge, right? Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's keep going. Second one. Second thing I want us to hit. Uh, Evil was not created by God. We had uh, several questions on the app already that have been submitted uh, that kind of asked about this, but this is, it's important to understand and to note that God is not the originator or the creator of evil. If you go back into Genesis 1 and you look at the creation story, we find that God created everything, and there's a word that gets used over and over and over as God steps back and evaluates his creation. What's the word? He saw it, and it was good, he says, right? It was good. In fact, uh, Genesis 1, 31, right? We'll just take, this is just one of those. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good, it says. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. In the Garden of Eden, the Bible describes the perfect scenario. There was no sin, there was no suffering, there was no evil, and there was no death. That was God's plan, Right? That's, he created man and woman. He put them there to live in perfect and right relationship with one another and with who else? With him, right? Right relationship with the living God. All was as it should be. All was right in the world. And when did evil and suffering and death enter the picture? It's not until Genesis chapter 3 where the man and, and the woman rebelled against God. They decided God must be holding out on us. I think there's better life if we go our own way. We'll there's only one rule in the garden. What, what was that rule? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you eat of it, you'll surely die. 
And they say, you know what? I think God is just holding out on us. And so they took it, they ate, and they went from God. Sin entered the world. Death entered the world. Everything has changed from that moment forward. But the truth of the matter is that God did not create evil, but he did create human beings with free will, with the potential to choose him or to rebel against him. The ability to choose if they would truly love and follow and serve him or not, if they'd go their own way. Allow me to just explain just a little bit. God created us with the potential to know him, the potential to love him and worship him and serve him and follow him. We are created for a real love relationship with God. That's his desire. That's, that's what the garden was all about. If we did not have that free will to choose whether, uh, whether or not we know it or not, whether or not we wanted to love God back, We'd be like robots or puppets. If we didn't have a choice, we'd be like robots or puppets programmed to go through the motions of love but never really experiencing the real thing. The idea of forced love, one author said, is actually an oxymoron of sorts. It's a contradiction. Either it's forced or it's love, but it can't really be both because love by definition is freely chosen. It's always freely chosen. And this was a huge deal to God. Listen to this quote I ran across from Norman Geisler. He said this, Since God is love, he cannot force himself on anyone against their will. Forced love is not love, it's rape. And God is not a divine rapist. Love must work persuasively, but not coercively. The upside of this is that God did not create evil. But he did create us as free beings and thus created the potential for evil. We unfortunately realized that potential. Evil entered the picture. Sin entered the picture and began plaguing humanity from that point forward. God knew this would happen, right? But he created us anyway, knowing that some would turn towards him. Some would find new life. Some would be restored. And knowing full well that one day that restoration would be complete because of what Christ did. It's the second thing, right? God is not the originator of evil. Is that a, a big comfort to us? I don't... Maybe not in the midst of suffering, but, but let me tell you, what, it's, it's important, friends, because when we experience suffering, we experience pain, when we get sinned on in horrific kind of ways, I think it's important to remember this was not God's design. This was, this was the result of our sin. This is the result of our path that entered the world because of our sin. That takes us to the third one. Third thing, the cause of most suffering in this world is our sin. It's unbelievable how much pain and hardship we inflict on one another, and it just stems from our own sinfulness. It's been estimated by some that 95% of all suffering in this world is a direct result of sin in one form or another, of our running away from God, our running away from His ways. For instance, I read this week, there's enough food on the planet for every person on the planet to eat a, a diet of 3,000 calories a day. There's enough food on the planet for everybody to eat and have enough. But it doesn't happen. Let me ask you why. Why? It's because we don't want to share with those around us. Instead, we want to hang on to our stuff. We want to hoard. We want to spend it on ourselves, so to speak, right? While others die of starvation around the world. We're selfish, or at least we can be, and as a result, there is suffering that comes as a consequence. Are there other reasons for that? Of course. Is there, are there corrupt governments that take food and supplies that get donated to, to countries that are starving to death, and they, they hoard them and steal them and get rich for themselves? Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff, but it's all sort of a result of sin. 
a little bit closer to home, if I may. I think all of us know this. Is it possible for our pride to cause damage in our relationships? Is it, is it, is it possible that my words reap havoc on those that are closest to me sometimes? How about you? Is it possible that our actions do damage to relationships? Nobody's like nodding or anything now. They're like, um, don't make eye contact, right? <laughs> kind of thing. Like, maybe if I don't look at him, maybe we'll assume that it doesn't happen to me, right? Do we do damage to our world? Do we do damage to those around us? Do we do damage even to those we love the most? We totally do. The results of our sin, of our bitterness, our pride, our jealousy, our lust, our hatred, and on and on and on. The, the results of our sin separate us from God, and it wounds one another. It causes great suffering in our world. It reminds me of a passage uh, from James uh, 4, 1 through 2. It says, what, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, your sort of evil desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, and so you kill. You covet what you cannot get, uh, what, and you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And the, James says, you silly people, you don't, you don't have because you're going to the wrong place, right? You're, you're not going to God. What causes fights and quarrels among you, you know what he's saying? It's sin. It's a rebellion against God's ways. It, it causes pain in your life and in those around you. Oftentimes, it's just sin. The result of our sin causes pain and death and suffering. There's a significant part of suffering that we as humanity just have to take responsibility for. We've sinned on one another again and again and again. Our sin, my sin, your sin is a part of the problem. And for us, I mean, for us in some ways, I think it's a little bit unfair for us to blame God, so to speak, for suffering when so much of it is at the direct result from our hands, from my words, from, from me and from you. I mean, again, it wasn't his plan. This world in its current state was our creation to some degree. The Garden of Eden was his. And one day it'll be restored. Galatians 6, 7 through 8 puts it this way. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that sinful nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. When we choose the path of sin, friends, the consequences, God says, will be painful. They will be destructive. We live in a world that has over and over and over again run from God, run from his ways, and we so often we reap the pain and the suffering that comes with it. I mean, think about with me some of what makes life so hard. Oftentimes, it's things like divorce. It's things, things like unfaithfulness by a spouse. It might be abuse by somebody that you trusted. It could be an addiction or drug abuse of some kind. It could be money that got spent unwisely, and now we're in bondage to it. It could be that we've lost somebody to a drunk driver or that a loved one has suffered and died because of a disease. These are all the results of sin to some degree. Now, that may, you may have been in one circumstance and whatever comes to your mind, you may have been the victim, but I think all of us have been both the victim of sin from others and a participant. We've been the cause of it to others as well, haven't we? Again, not, not one of these things that you, you hear and you think, oh man, that makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside, but I think it's an important step to remember that God is not against you, right? He is for you. 
And that takes us to our next one. God is able to take even sin, even the worst junk, even suffering and the worst stuff and turn it around and turn it into good. Man, I, I, uh, I can't help but think of Joseph in this one, the story of Joseph, Old Testament story. We read over and over and over. He had, oh, in some ways, a pretty terrible life. You see a lot um, of his backstory. His brothers uh, tried to kill him and then sold him into slavery. You know, you, any dysfunction there? I don't know, yeah. Right, I mean, like, <laughs> that kind of thing. I mean, he was wrongly imprisoned. He was wrongly accused, thrown in prison, kind of left for dead, forgotten there. And yet, God takes his life. He raises him up, puts him in the second highest position in the land. Use him to save two countries. <laughs> use him to save his brothers and his family, even. I mean, used him in powerful ways. Impacted the, the entire trajectory of the known world at that time. I mean, it was incredible. God used him. He turned it around. And there's this famous quote, right? I'm going to get to it in a minute. But this famous quote at the end of, of his story where he's face to face with his brothers who, again, had tried to kill him and sold him into slavery. And he said, you know what? You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. You meant it for evil, but God was able to turn that thing around and use it for his good plan for you and for the world. And God is in the redemption business. This is what he does best, man. He takes our mess, he takes a wreck, and he redeems it. He restores it. He turns it back around and uses even sin and suffering and the worst of the worst, and he uses it for his good and for our good. Man, I wonder how many of us in this room ended up coming to know Jesus. My, me, for one, ended up coming to know Jesus because of our suffering, because of pain, because of even ways that other people sinned on us. And God turned it around and used it for an amazing thing to fill us and to make us new and to bring us home into the life that we were born for. God takes even the worst. He turns it around and uses it for good. Romans 8, 28, right, says this. It says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God is in the redemption business. He takes things that are broken and distorted and off course, and he's able to turn them right side up and bring his good plans out of it. He promises to work in all things for the good of those who love him. It doesn't often look like what we think it will. It's often not the path we would have chosen on the front end, but he is able and willing and does. He brings about good even out of the most painful situations. I ran across this story this week. Love it. It's a story about a guy by the name of Samuel Brengel. He was an officer and leader in the Salvation Army in Boston in the late 1800s. He was a man that God used powerfully to impact uh, people's lives and eternities for Christ. In the early part of his ministry, he was passionate about serving people on the streets, about meeting practical needs and helping to point them towards Jesus. And on one particular night, things went very wrong. There was a rowdy guy that was across the street uh, listening as, as uh, Brengel was sharing Christ with the crowd. Uh, and he came and started bantering and arguing. Things were getting heated. And finally, he asked, Brengel asked the guy to leave. He said, man... We can, we can talk later, we can whatever, but this is, not, this is not going anywhere good. The guy refused to leave. Finally, he went, took him by the arm, and gently escorted him out kind of a, away from the crowd. He finished up the, uh, the message again, was ministering to the, to the poor and the needy and, and helping them out. 
and uh, when the, the service was done for that night, he went down the stairs, and there was the angry man uh, at the bottom of the stairs waiting for him. He takes a brick less than 10 feet from him, hurls it at his head, hits him, strikes him on the head, pushes his head clean back so it's caught between uh, the door frame and the brick, and uh, the guy collapses. One, one uh, reporter said, crumpled up against the doorway lay a uniformed man, his head covered with bled, blood. Nearby lay a brick which had been hurled at him from not more than 10 feet away. The force of the impact had smashed the man's head against the doorpost. It was a wonder he was not killed. And in fact, it was touch and go for 18 months. He wavered between life and death. He was in and out of consciousness. But miraculously, he lived. Eventually, he was sent away to a special medical treat to get special medical treatment under the strictest orders. He was sent back home to Lily, his wife, uh, to see if he could really fully recover and be able to re-enter Salvation Army service. The man who threw the brick has been long forgotten, but the, the man whose life it nearly ended, for many months he was unable to resume his work, but he became known and loved by multitudes in that land, for the brick started to pay for the victim a new path. During this inactive period, Brengel be became discouraged and frustrated as he, as he was taken out of ministry for such a lengthy period of time. He felt that this was just a waste and a distraction from his real ministry, but eventually he took up the pen and began writing different articles on the theme of becoming more like Christ. These articles were later collected and published as books, which went on to sell more than a million copies. Through his writings, Brengel's influence spread. He became a well-known author of the day, a leader uh, and a leading author of doctrine for the Salvation Army. He was even a well-known evangelist that traveled around the world. His influence impacted countless numbers of people for Christ, and his books are even still read to this day. Thousands and thousands of people's lives and eternities were changed through his ministry. In retrospect, both he and his wife recognized God's providential hand in allowing what they referred to as the brick incident <laughs> that almost took his life. Sam would often quip, well, if there had been no little brick, there would have been no little books. <laughs> After returning uh, from the health resort, Brengel one day found his wife uh, painting on the bottom of the brick that had caused so much pain and hardship. She went on to say that she had made a covenant with God to keep every brick that got thrown at him. And with that, she handed him the brick. And on the bottom of the brick were the words we just quoted from Genesis 50. This said, man meant it for evil, but God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. Isn't that great? God is able to take even the hardest, the worst, the most sinful, the most evil kind of situations in our lives. He is able to turn those around in his providence, in his strength, in his power to redeem them, to make them new and use them for good in our lives. Now that's something that gives hope, isn't it? When we're walking through the storms, when we're walking through dark days, you meant it for evil. But God can take it, does take it, and uses it for good, for the saving of many lives. That can sum up so much, I think, of the hardship and pain that we go through in our lives. No matter how big the sin, how, how ill-intentioned the other party, God is able to turn it around and use it for his good plans. Fifth one uh, is this. God promises us that it won't always be this way. Friends, God didn't create suffering in this world like we discussed. He didn't create all the junk that we're talking about today. 
It was us that chose sin. And ever since there has been pain, there has been death, there has been suffering, there has been hardship in the world. Some of it man-made, some not. But it's important to note that it won't always be this way. For those of us that have received the forgiveness that Jesus offers, they will, that we will spend eternity in a far, 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 far better place, right? Revelation 21, 3 through 5 paints a picture of it like this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Listen to this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. Friends, hear this. God didn't create suffering and pain and death and junk. He didn't create it, but he will bring an end to it. Is that good news? Okay, that was weak. (laughs) He will bring an end to suffering. He will bring an end to injustice. He will bring an end to death. It will be no more. We will be with him and will, in his glorious presence, forever. I'll tell you what, this has been the hope of Christ followers for thousands of years. The the, the norm for Christ followers over the last 2,000 years is they have lived uh, worldwide in in lands where they are persecuted for being Christ followers. In the early church, uh, one of the... The emperors, one of their favorite things to do would be to soak Christians in oil, put them up on posts and light them on fire to use them as torches at his parties. They knew tons about suffering. The writers of the New Testament knew suffering in ways that we never will. You want to know what their hope was? You want to know what their hope was? Another day is coming. You can kill me and I'll live forever. Life on this earth is but a speck. It's but a moment and then eternity. For those that follow Christ, for those that know Christ, there will be life forever. A better day is coming. It's been the hope of the church throughout the ages. Another day is coming when all this crap, all this junk, all this sin, all this pain, all this suffering will be put away with. It'll be done with. It'll be flushed (laughs) forever. And instead, we will know life like we have never known. God says, behold, I will make all things new. I will redeem and restore back to the Garden of Eden, back to what you and I were always intended to live in. Another day is coming, so have hope. Behold, he says, another day is coming. Sixth thing, real quick. The other piece that I think is meant to give us unbelievable amounts of comfort and hope is the fact that even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of all kinds of stuff, we are not alone. We are not alone. Hebrews 13.5 says this, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, God says. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus himself says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, he says to his followers. Friends, you are not meant to just struggle out there on your own. You're not intended to just slog through the muck of this life by yourself. 
You are made for the living God and he wants to do life with you. He will never leave you. He never has. He never will. He is present. He is available. He's powerful and he is here to lead you and guide you and comfort you and show you life if you'll let him. He's a good God and you can trust him. There's a, uh, a Scottish theologian by the name of James Stewart who compares the question of suffering and evil to this scene at the end of uh, Charles Dick Dickens' classic book, The Tale of Two Cities. He puts it like this. Condemned prisoners are being driven in carts to the guillotine in Paris during the French Revolution. One of the carts carries two prisoners. One is a man who had once lost his soul but later found it through redemption by God. And now he's uh, making the choice to forfeit his own life to save the life of a friend. The second prisoner is a little girl. And she had seen the gentleness and the courage in that man's face in prison. And she had said to him, if I ride with you, will you let me hold your hand? She said, I'm not afraid, but I am little and I am weak and it would give me courage. He says, and so now they rode together. Her hand was in his. And even when they reached the place of execution, there was no fear at all in her eyes. She looked into the quiet and composed face of the man beside her and she said these words. She said, I, I think you were sent to me by heaven. Stuart says, what's the answer to the mystery of suffering? It's not an explanation, but it's a reinforcing presence. It's Jesus Christ to stand beside you through the darkness. It's his companionship to make the darkness experience, the dark experience sacred. He says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. He said, I think Jesus. He said, no, I know Jesus was sent to me by heaven. Friends, I can't stand up here today and, and fully or totally explain to you why there is suffering in this world and that we have to walk through. But what I can tell you is that the answer to what you are looking for is found in Christ. It's having him walk with you and lead you and comfort you and guide you even in the midst of this life and in the next. The answers are found in that loving relationship with Christ Jesus. And for those of, who put their trust in him, who, who ask him to forgive them for their sins and to lead them from this point forward, the Bible teaches that he will come and live life inside of you. He will come and take up residence in you, and he promises to be your comforter and your companion, even your friends. He'll fill you. He'll use you. He'll bring purpose and fulfillment to your soul. He'll forgive you and make you new, and he will assure you of a happily ever after one day in heaven. He can and will show you love like you have never seen and you have never known. He alone can bring purpose to life even in the midst of suffering. I want to end today sort of where we started with John 16, 33 that says this. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Friends, there's going to be hardship, there's going to be suffering in this world. It's the result of living in a sinful world. But take heart, there is someone who's been sent to you from heaven. Someone that will that promises to come and lead you and strengthen you and give you hope and a future and a happily ever after. Let's close in prayer. Father, we, uh, we just recognize it's such a hard topic to talk about. Lord, you know the, the wrestlings of our heart. You know the suffering that we endure. You know... Uh, this stuff going on in our worlds and in our lives. And Father, I pray right now that you would come and minister. 
I thank you, God, that you don't leave us alone (laughs) to just slog through this stuff on our own, but that you come and you bring peace and life and purpose that you can take even the worst situations and circumstances and redeem it and turn it around and use it for good. I thank you there's hope for us because a better day is coming. Another life is coming. Thank you, God, that you are good, that you are trustworthy, and that you can bring good out of anything. And so, God, right now, we just want to open up our hearts and our lives to you. We say, come, Lord Jesus, come and fill us, come and lead us, come and have your way in us. We need you. We can't do it on our own. We don't want to do it on our own, so come and have your way. We love you. We need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.